is open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of 1 Kings. I'd like to read the first section of verses here to set the context for us, and then we will seek the Lord in prayer. 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned round and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised, with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Let us seek the Lord's blessing upon his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up this great prayer of Solomon to us. That you would instruct us by your word. That you would convict us of our sin. That you would give us great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is a day that is often called Resurrection Sunday. It's an unusual day, not just simply because more men are wearing suits and more ladies wearing fine dresses. This is actually the earliest that Easter or Resurrection Sunday has occurred in, I think, about a hundred years. Don't wait for the next one. I think it'll be something like 150 years before it will be this early again in March. The earliest possible day for this day is March 22nd. It has to be the first Sunday of spring after a full moon. And since the 21st is Sunday, you can imagine. But it is a day that catches our attention. It's a day for rejoicing. We think about the Lord Jesus Christ and Him being risen and it thrills our hearts. The question that I would have for you this morning, as you look down at your bulletin or at your open Bible and wonder about the first time that you have ever heard a sermon from 1 Kings on Resurrection Sunday, is why is it a day for rejoicing? And how do I rejoice? What's a biblical way to rejoice in what the Lord has done? You know, I had an interesting 
week this week, as, I, as is my habit, as you know, I simply forge on through our texts, no matter what Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And yet, the more that I read this chapter, the more that I thought, apart from perhaps 1 Corinthians 15, there is no chapter in the entire Bible more filled with hope than 1 Kings 8. And it is my prayer for you that you will see the hope of the Lord, the hope that His people have clung to for thousands of years. A hope that is grounded in God, because He is the God to love. God is the God that we love. He is lovable in Himself. He is beyond compare. And we will see that, that there is a God that we can love. And then secondly, we'll see that Solomon moves from describing the magnificence of God and how lovable He is. And he launches into a great prayer of faith. You see, it's the character of God that drives Solomon to pray this marvelous prayer of faith. And at the end of this prayer, we'll see that this prayer is not simply empty platitudes, not simply something to make Solomon feel better. It's not just that he had an obligation as king to say a few words when they dedicated the gold to the temple. No, we will see that Solomon tells us that there is a life of hope that comes from knowing God and from praying to Him in faith. And it should be no surprise that in such a great prayer as this, the three cardinal virtues of the faith are there. Faith, hope, and love. Let us then look first at the God to love, the God that we are to love. Solomon begins this prayer by addressing the people. He says, The Lord has said that He would dwell in thick darkness. And, and I've built you this house. And he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with His hand has fulfilled what He has promised. He goes on to describe the Lord. And then there's this wonderful statement here in verse 23. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath. There is no one like God. There are other celebrations. There are other religions. There are other philosophies. There are other things that people attempt to place their hope in. But there is none like God, either in heaven or in earth. It's as if Solomon is crying out to you, don't look for things on earth for your solutions. Don't look for traveling through the stars to find meaning. Whether you go to heaven or to earth, there is none like God. This is the cry of God's people, isn't it? It's what the Israelites rejoiced in in Exodus 15 when they sang that great song of Moses. And they said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Wondrous in holiness, working wonders. God is awesome before us. Solomon, at the dedication of this temple, as wondrous as it is, we've described it over the past few weeks with all its gold and silver and cedar and stones. And Solomon says, you know what? You can't dwell here, Lord. This temple can't fit you. You are beyond it. Even the heavens can't hold you, he says in verse 30. 
He says, you cannot be contained, O Lord. Does that, is that your view of God today? You see, God cannot be comprehended by you or by me. You cannot get your arms around God. You cannot understand all His ways. You cannot know all His will. You cannot plumb the depths of His holiness or the heights of His joy or the power of His love. You cannot. He is beyond us. But do you see something else here happening in this text? Solomon is saying, you have this temple, O Lord. You cannot dwell in it. It is beyond you. But, Lord, we can speak to you. We can pray to you. You can place your name here. You see, the God who cannot be comprehended can be apprehended. He can be known. Even if he cannot be known fully, you can know the Lord God, the creator of the universe today. You don't need to know all the intricacies of physics. You don't need to know the depths of all the oceans. You don't need to know the expanse of the universe. But you can know the Lord God. You see, man is always trying to take the world, the universe... And have dominion over it. We see that even today in, in modern science. What do scientists seek for all the time? But a unified theory, right? Something that explains everything. So that they can write it down on a piece of paper and say, this explains everything that there is and everything that there will be. It's vanity. You see, real meaning is found in acknowledging that God is beyond us. That he is unique and incomparable. He is not limited by space. The temple itself testifies to that. You see, the temple is a place for his name, we see in verse 20. That the Lord had promised to build a house for the name of the Lord through Solomon. It was a place where he would be known, but not a place where he would dwell. Now, why is that important to you and to me today? To know that God is, in a sense, incomprehensible, unbounded, known but not contained. It means, Christian, friend, that if you are trying today to put bounds around God so you can feel safe, you must repent of that. You see, God will not be bound by obligation. That's the heart of the enemy of the gospel. He says, I will do and God will owe. I will do this and God must do that because he is obligated to me. He must do what I make him do. You see, God is not like that. God is not bound to our obedience. God is not bound to our personal gain. God is not bound to our obligation. You see, God keeps his covenant, Solomon says, because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we have done. This is the way of the world. It has been the way of the world since the days before Solomon. You see, that is why magic exists. It was something that unbelievers thought could be used to harness the gods. 
make them do what they wanted to do. It was the trump card that they pulled out of their pocket. I win. Magic. And you see, it's like that today, even now. We're seeking to control God in our society. We're seeking to control all that He controls. To have a trump card over God. But you see, God is not like that. He is incomparable. But it's not just that God is incomparable. Do you know one who is more trustworthy than God? There is no one as he could be compared to, but there is also no one who is as trustworthy as he is. Solomon reminds us of this in this great prayer. He says God keeps his promises. If you turn later in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, you will see the list of promises that Solomon says have been kept. God had promised that he would give David a son to sit on his throne. And Solomon says in verse 20, God kept his promise. He says that he would have David's son build him a house. And Solomon says in verse 21, God has kept his promise. And then he says that God would build a dynasty, a house for David. And in verse 25, Solomon says, God has kept his promise. Now, this is not just mere recitation. This is something to live on, Christian. Do you notice that for Solomon, this keeping of the promise has both a personal and a corporate identity? God kept his promise corporately to Israel to put someone on the throne of Israel, to build a house for his name, and to build a dynasty. But it's also a very personal promise to Solomon, isn't it? You see, that's not unlike the promise of the resurrection, is it? God has promised to conquer death. And he has promised that corporately for his church. His church will live with him forever. Death is not the end. And he has shown that he has kept that promise in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just a promise for all of us, is it? It's a promise that you can claim today. That God keeps his promises that in the midst of creaking knees or backs or coughs or illness, that that is not the end. In the midst of sorrow, thinking back on loved ones who have gone, that that is not the end. You see, God always keeps his promises. There is no one more trustworthy than him. As a matter of fact, we can say that this promise of the resurrection goes all the way back to Abraham, doesn't it? God had said, I will provide a lamb. God had said, I will pass through the sacrifice. I will make atonement. God repeated that promise to Isaiah, didn't he? He repeated the promise again to the apostles in the New Testament. God always keeps his promises. We need to be reminded of that. Can you recount today the promises the Lord has kept for you? Some of them are easy to recount. You look around you and you see children. You see a wife, a husband. You look back there and you see a drawing of a building, a flag planted in Katy. And you see God keeping his promises. 
You see God's word on your lap, that he has kept the promise to give to you his word and to keep it and preserve it. And you have it. God is daily keeping his promises for you. There is no one who can be compared to God. There is no one more trustworthy than God. But the other thing that Solomon reminds us is that there is no one more intimate than God. Now this may seem odd. We've just talked about how incomprehensible God is, how other God is, how he can not be contained in a temple. But look at what Solomon says in verse 21. He says, And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon reminds Israel that God has revealed himself to them in the past. He revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself to Israel. He revealed himself to David. He revealed himself to Solomon. God is intimate with his people. You see, because God's character binds him to his people. Look at how Solomon describes God in verse 23. He said, There is no one like you, God, who shows steadfast love to your servants. God is a God of love, bound to his people. In verse 24, You have kept what, with your servant David, my father, what you have declared. God is a God who is faithful. He is a God who is consistent. Look in verse 25. He says, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man before me. Keep your promise consistently, O Lord. And he is a God who relates to us and hears us. Look in verse 30. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Solomon is describing who God is, and even though we can't know all of the love of God, all of the faithfulness of God, all of the consistency of God, all of the relational aspect of God, we know that that is a part of who God is. And by its very nature, it binds him to us. You see, God desires a relationship with his people. We see that in verse 23. He wants his servants to walk before him with all their heart. You see, God cannot be contained by the temple or by the heavens. But have you noticed what else is true of God? Look at verse 28. After, in verse 27, Solomon has just made this very sweeping statement that God cannot be known completely, that he cannot be contained, he says, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. Now, this afternoon, while you're waiting for the ham to cool, look through And see how many times the word hear and listen are used in this prayer. From verse 28 down to the end of this prayer, 12 times Solomon says, Lord, you hear. Lord, you listen. Lord, you hear. 
Do you see that? The God who is so immense that the heavens can't contain him listens to the prayer of every single one of his people. you imagine that? The God that the universe cannot contain hears every one of your prayers. Does that seem amazing? Does that seem contradictory? Well, it's as one commentator says, it is classic God. It's just like the incarnation, isn't it? That the God who is the Lord of the universe would come as a servant, as a helpless babe. It's also like the concept of God dying, isn't it? He who is life himself, who is the resurrection and the life, dies that we might have life. And after death, it's like the dead rising. You see, the Lord is, in a sense, full of these wonders. God, the Lord of the universe, desires to be with us, to hear him, to know us. Do you know that, God? Is that the Lord that you know? Do you know some kind of divine watchmaker that spins up the world and lets it go? Or do you know the Lord that hears your cry in the middle of the night? Do you know some sweeping grandeur that is incomprehensible? Or do you know your rock, your salvation, your hope. You see, because God wants you. He wants his people to know him. And Solomon, after he's described who God is, he then moves, or is moved, we might say, to this marvelous prayer of faith. And the first thing that he describes is knowing your need. It's not surprising that after he has described the magnificence of God, that he moves immediately to the need of God's people. And it is a need for forgiveness. Look with me here at verse 30. He says, Listen to the plea of your servant and your people. And when you hear, forgive. And in verse 34, Then hear in heaven and forgive. And in verse 36, then hear in heaven and forgive. And then in verse 39, then hear in heaven your, your dwelling place and forgive. And in verse 50, and forgive your people. Solomon is aware of the need of himself and God's people for forgiveness. Now, I want to remind you of the context of this prayer. This is the single greatest accomplishment of the people of God ever. Think about that. This is the pinnacle of the work of the church in the Old Testament. One united kingdom stretching its greatest bounds, having built this 
marvelous temple for the Lord God. And they are gathering to dedicate it. This is the highlight of millennia. And do you notice what Solomon dwells on? Our need for forgiveness before a holy God. It's as if all this magnificence drives him to his knees. Literally, we see from the text. He is on his knees. He begins praying standing and he ends up on his knees because he is driven there by the character of God. Is that your attitude in your success? When you get a promotion? When you hear we're moving ahead with a building? When your child gets into the right college? Is your attitude in success, Lord, make me more holy, grant me forgiveness for my sins? Because you see, that's Solomon's attitude. And he comes with this sevenfold petition that we won't look to in great detail. If we were looking at multiple sermons in this text, we might look at each one of these petitions. But I want you to notice the comprehensive nature of these prayers beginning here in verse 31. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor, his first petition is when the judgment that needs to be made is difficult. He says, God, when someone breaks the cardinal rule by not showing love to his neighbor. It's the second great commandment, our Lord says. And we don't know what to do. Lord, please hear. When the people are unwilling to obey you, and when we are unable to obey you because we don't know, Lord, hear us. Now think about who that comes from. This is the man who just solved the greatest decision to be made ever a few chapters ago. And he says, I need the Lord. And then he turns and he says, when your people Israel are defeated, we know we will be, O Lord. Please hear us. You remember the story. This little town called Ai. It should be such a piece of cake to beat that the Israelites don't even send their whole forces against it. But because of sin, they are defeated. You see, God's people start to think about their power. They think about their authority. And God reminds them that He is God. Solomon says, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, because of your judgment upon us, Lord, hear us. We're going to look at that in months to come, when there is a drought in the land. He says, when famines and plagues come, hear the prayer of every man. And he says in verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner comes, hear the foreigner. And even when we have success in war, O Lord, please forgive us our sins and hear us. Now, the thing that is interesting about this sevenfold petition is that it is basically a road map of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It's all the curses that God had promised to send in these instances. But there's more to that, isn't it? When is the historian writing these verses? When Israel is in exile. When all of these things have come upon them. You see? He's saying this to people who have experienced this. 
He's reminding them of the curse of God that has come upon them. He's praying for the people to know their need. But it's not just that they would know the need that they have. He wants them to pray that they would desire change, that they would be desiring change. Because you see, this punishment that comes from God has a positive function. Look at verse 35. In verse 35, Solomon says this. He says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way. You see, God doesn't punish capriciously. God desires us to be instructed, to be humble. It's kind of like those of you who maybe have served in the armed forces. Basic training is not much fun, is it? But when you're out in the field, you're glad you've had those bumps and bruises from basic training. You see, as bad as anything that comes our way, Job loss, sickness, depression, forlornness, loneliness. As bad as that that comes our way, the Lord is constantly using those things to draw us to himself. That we might not experience eternal separation from him. That we might not experience eternal loss. You see, the Lord knows what is at stake. He reminds us that the critical thing is to live again, is to be with Him. And so He instructs us. And that provides hope for us in the midst of our difficulties. Do you see the hope that comes from this punishment? It's a hope founded upon the Word of God. Because you see, the worst of all possible things that could happen here, Solomon describes here in verse 46. If they sin against you, And he says, for there's no one who doesn't sin. And you are angry with them, and they are carried away by an enemy. The worst possible thing that could happen. Yet, if they turn their hearts toward you, you will bring them back. You see, the believer's hope is not founded on good circumstances. It's not founded on excitement. It's not founded on optimism. It's founded upon the Word of God. Do you see that this morning? That your hope is not in what you think the world looks like. It's in the Word of God who has said, your sins are forgiven. Death is no more. My promises are kept. That is where your hope is, in the certainty of the Word of God. And that's a hope that you can have when circumstances are fabulous and when circumstances are horrible. It's the hope of the Word of God. This has always been the case, but we don't always see it, do we? Do you remember the disciples between that Friday... And Sunday? They weren't a very happy bunch, were they? They're walking around, sorrowful, moping, 
They think the world is over. There's two of them, the disciples, on the way to Emmaus. And they say, don't you know what's happened? The one whom we thought would be the Messiah, but he was killed. They're afraid. They're shivering. Why? Because of what they have seen. Right? All of the hope has been sucked out of them because of what they have seen. And you might counter, well, they, but they haven't seen the resurrection yet. They don't know that the stone is rolled away. They don't know that the tomb is empty. But I ask you, didn't Jesus tell them that? Didn't he say, death cannot hold me? Didn't he say, I am the Messiah? Didn't he say, destroy this temple and, and I will rebuild it in three days? But you see, they couldn't grasp the promise. They needed to see. That's why our Lord says, to you and to you and to you, yes to you, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You haven't seen any big boulders moved across the sides of caves lately, have you? You haven't seen any grave clothes lying by themselves lately, have you? No. As a matter of fact, what you see are attempts by the world to trot out a skeleton that's Jesus. Theories about, well, he fainted, and then the disciples spirited him away. That's what the world wants to put in front of you. And so what do you say? Oh, no, 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 here's the Shroud of Turin, I got that. No. Oh, no, wait, here's the boulder that was moved, look. No, what do you say? Here's the word of God. What he says is true. And I stake my life upon it. You see, that is the kind of change that God brings about in people. And it's a change that can't be kept in. It can't be kept here. It's like the news of the resurrection. It's like the fact of the resurrection. It can't be contained locally or just with Jesus. It spreads out. It is infectious. And so Solomon here, in the midst of the greatest day in Israel's history, do you know what he does? He says, Lord, if there's any foreigner, and he uses the word really foreigner. You see, there's two words for foreigner in Hebrew. The first word is the foreigner who dwells in Israel, kind of like what we would call an alien in the United States, regardless of whether they have a green card or not. It's someone who lives here and who is here. That's not who Solomon's talking about. He's talking about the Babylonian. He's talking about the Egyptian. He's talking about the Philistine. He's talking about the Ninevite. He says, if someone over there hears and prays, hear him, Lord, that your glory would go out throughout all the earth. And this kind of prayer seeks God's glory. It wants God's name to be known. Solomon intentionally universalizes this call. Is that what your hope is today? You see, is Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday a day when we put on our finest and we come in together and we shut out the world and we say, life is good in the church? 
Or is Resurrection Sunday the day when we say there is hope for everyone? There is hope in Iraq. There is hope in the Sudan. There is hope in Malaysia because Jesus Christ is risen. And the glory of the Lord spreads throughout all the earth. That's the kind of powerful prayer that Solomon prays. You see, you might be here even today. You might be visiting and say, well, all of this preaching stuff isn't really for me. All this Bible stuff isn't really for me. I'm, I'm here, but this is a church thing and I don't normally go to church. Solomon says it is for you today. You might be in the church all the time and say, well, I'm not really connected. I'm not sure really this hope is for me. I'm not, I'm not like this person. I'm not like that person. Solomon says it is for you. You are to be drawn to God's family through the power of the work of Jesus Christ. And you see what this gives us, seeing this God, moving us to this kind of prayer, it shows us the life of hope. And this life of hope is rooted in God's presence. If you look here at the end of Solomon's prayer, it's very interesting. It's interesting because it ends pretty much like it began. It ends with the hope for the future and the hope for right now being based on God's covenant loyalty. Do you notice how Solomon ends in verse 56? He says, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people. Not one word has failed of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And then he says, may he not leave us or forsake us. He says, my hope for the future is based upon what God has done. And so I ask you that question this morning. Is your hope for tomorrow grounded and rooted in the presence of God in your life today? Are you worried about the home you're going to buy? Are you worried about an upcoming marriage? Are you worried about an upcoming birth? Are you concerned about your children's instruction? Do you draw confidence for tomorrow from looking back at what the Lord has done in your life? How he has called you to himself? How he has brought you to your family? How he has brought you to his people. You see, that's the way of hope. That's why the resurrection is such an incredible marker of hope. Because we look back and see what God has done, and it gives us hope and confidence for what he will do in the future. Because it is rooted in who God is. That God doesn't change. He doesn't say, well, I raised Jesus And yeah, you did see Moses and Elijah on the mountain, and okay, but you know what? I've changed my mind. Death's back on. Well, I've changed my mind. There'll be tears in heaven. No. It's because of who God is. We can trust not only what he has done, but what he will do. And you see, God shows us that we can have hope, even in the midst of sorrow and death. If you think about it, the greatest source of hope for the Christian is the fact that God keeps his curses. You heard me. 
He keeps his curses. Galatians 3.13 tells us that he declared Jesus Christ, he made him a curse that we would have life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he was made sin that we might be the righteousness of God. Do you see that the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is a display of the curses of God in which we can draw hope that the curses of God have been fulfilled, that they have been poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gives us power. We are empowered by God because we see what He has done. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, you know, I wish I could just have more faith. I wish I could be like these Bible people, like Solomon, like David, like Abraham. Turn with me briefly, if you will, as we prepare to close, to the book of Romans, Chapter 4 is a classic text on faith. In verse 16, we read about Abraham's faith. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest upon grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And it goes on to describe how he was fully convinced and how he had this magnificent faith. In verse 23, it says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for whose? Ours also. That's who it was written for. It will be counted to us who believe in him, what? Who gave really big faith to Abraham. Who made it really easy for these Patriarchs to believe because he appeared to them. No, what does the text say? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? Our justification. You see, that is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope of the resurrection. That our sins are forgiven. That the Lord has a relationship with us. That he buttresses our faith. That he brings us to himself. That is the power that God gives in hope. And when Solomon says, you know, when things get really bad and you're taken away... Remember this and pray toward my temple. Remember this day. Remember what's been done and use that for your hope. Have you ever wondered why Daniel was very fussy about his quiet time? You know how Daniel, he prayed and it became an area of controversy. He actually gets thrown out into the lion's den. He made himself no matter what, get together and to pray. And in Daniel 6, 10, it describes it in kind of an odd way that Daniel is seen praying and he actually gets thrown into the lion's den because he's doing something. He's praying out a window. Do you know what the text says that he's doing? He's praying toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. You see, Daniel had his Bible. Daniel knew that Solomon had said, 
in verse 48, if they repent and pray to you towards their land, the city, and towards the house, forgive them. You see, Daniel was resting upon the work, the word of God and the promise of God, and that pointed him toward the temple. Daniel saw that it was God who turns hearts. And this leads Israel to an unbelievable kind of joy. The kind of joy that we talk about on a Resurrection Sunday. Do you notice what happens? The whole group of them leave, and they're rejoicing here at the end of this chapter. They're joyful and glad of heart for all of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Israel. So, the question then is, Okay, so there's hope. But why? Why should we be happy this morning? Why should we wear white dresses and hats? Why should we have an extra little bit of a smile around lunch? Solomon answers that question for us. He says it's because we serve a great God who loves us. And it's because God calls us to himself and he wants to have a relationship with us. He so wants to have a relationship with you, Christian, that he broke the bonds of death to have it. Death could not keep you from him. And we have hope because the presence of God is with us. It's among us. And that gives us the power to walk today. So today, go forward in joy and hope and rejoicing because the Lord your God is with you and he keeps every one of his promises. They are all what? Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so blessed us by your word and your spirit. And we pray, O Lord, that you would meet with us yet not only this day, but every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Now hear the Lord's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, back from the dead, may he equip you with every good thing that you might do what is pleasing in his sight, now and forever. Amen.